thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hope you kept your place in the book of Galatians. And if you did not, please find your way there. D. James Kennedy was quite a man about town in Miami in his 20s. He had little interest in things spiritual. He had his clock radio set for 9 o'clock on a certain Sunday so that he could go to his job as a dance instructor at the Arthur Murray Dance School. And to his amazement, he was awakened by this booming voice. And the voice was saying to him, have you come to the place in your life that you know for sure that you have eternal life? That is to say, if you were to die today, would you go to be with God in heaven? He was startled by the question. Actually, he was more than startled. He was convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. A second question was raised. If you were to die today, it was as if the voice on the other side of that radio was speaking directly to him. If you were to die today and stand before God and he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? This man listened intently to the message from a church in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia to be exact, the 10th Presbyterian Church, and the voice was that of Donald Gray Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse continued, continued to carry forth this question and gave the answers. The answer is, man can do nothing. He began by saying, Heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned nor deserved. Perhaps you've wondered what you must do to get into heaven. You've tried your best to be a model person, but you've slipped and fallen along the way. But the scripture says heaven is impossible for you to earn. It is not deserved. He goes on to talk about how Dr. Barnhouse said that man is a sinner and cannot save himself. That is the truth. And that's the truth of the book of Galatians, by the way. Dr. Kennedy, as he came to be known, became one of the leading voices in the last quarter of the 20th century into the 21st century when it came to sharing Christ and instilling in others a desire to share the gospel with others. And literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, since that conversion, he got saved quickly that day actually, and he changed the whole course of his life because he realized he was in debt to the Lord and could not pay him back, but wanted to serve him. And that's what happened. The book of Galatians is largely about the gospel, contrasting it to the religion of man. The religion of man is to do things, good things, in hopes of amounting a great enough 
pile of goodness that the good things that he has done will overturn the bad things which he has done. But in this great epistle of Paul, we hear, if you look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, it's worth revisiting them for the third time. Look at it in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, and that means made right with God, knowing that not a person is made right with God by the works of the law. We know the law was given through intermediaries, angels in fact, to Moses, and Moses in turn gave it to the people of Israel. And we, by virtue of knowing about this, we are born under the law. But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Last week, I talked about the role of the law. It did not cancel the promise of God to Abraham. There was a period of seven to eight centuries which separated God speaking to Abraham and telling him to go to a place he did not know, to take his wife, take his nephew and his servants, and just go as a nomad would go. And he obeyed at the age of 75. His wife, 65, accompanied him. And God spoke to him and promised him that out of him and out of Sarah would come a nation of people who would be His people. And through them, there would eventually be a seed that would be born who would be the Savior of the world. The eventually took a while. It took two millennia. It was 2,000 years after God encountered Abraham that Jesus was born. We wonder, why so long, Lord? We don't know, but we know that God never makes a mistake. And we're going to see in the passage that we're considering in more detail today just how that time was the ideal time for the law to be canceled by God's promise in the sense that the promise of God predated the law by seven to eight centuries. And the promise was primary. The law has a purpose, as we saw last week, in clarifying God's promise and make it absolutely necessary for our salvation. Well, that having been said, what we want to consider now is the status of believers under the gospel. Paul has spoken in the book of Galatians largely about our status under the law. We're without hope without the gospel because we can't save ourselves. But what he talks about in this section beginning with verse 25 is our status as believers under the gospel of God. This passage, beginning with verse 23 and going forward, 
is a passage which speaks of our position, if we know Christ, our position in relationship to God. How does God view us now? That Christ has died for us and we have trusted Jesus for our salvation and trusted Him alone, knowing that we can't save ourselves nor can any other human being save us. It's only by Christ's work that we can be saved and made new people in Christ. Let's begin with verse 23 to get the context. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. This word, meaning shut up, was used outside the context of the New Testament to describe someone who is locked up with no power of escape. I don't know if you caught this news story. August 31st, there was a man named Danilo Cavalcante, a Brazilian who had been found guilty of murdering his girlfriend in front of her two children. He had been apprehended, convicted, and then imprisoned. But within a few short days, he escaped from a maximum security prison. That doesn't say a whole lot about Pennsylvania's maximum security, for sure. But he had been put away for life, shut up for life. He escaped by crab walking, and I wanted to see what that was. I had some idea, and it's actually on video. And he sneaks around and gets into a corridor, and his body was rather small. The narrowness of that hallway allowed him to put his feet against one, his hands on the other side, and he crabbed his way up got out and escaped. It took several days before he could be rounded up, but he was put back in and I'm sure he's going to look for a way to get out again. There's only one way for me or you to gain acceptance with God. This is what the scripture says in verse 24. It says that we are made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. This word justification is used repeatedly in the book of Galatians and in many of Paul's writings. And it means that it's just as if we had never sinned when Christ saves us from our sin, when He wipes the slate clean and we are in a position of great comfort. The law was necessary to make us conscious of our sin. The law can't save us, but it does play a role. We have to know we're sinners. And it's not something we're born with altogether. Some of us can remember before we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there was a little twinge of guilt when we did things which were wrong. Didn't you ever remember that before you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 2, talks about how God has put in our hearts the law. It's part of who we are to have that kind of understanding internally when it comes to our needing salvation. 
the law does do something in the process, of course, of our coming to know the Lord. But going back to this passage of Scripture as it relates to our position, believers are all full grown in Christ, is what this text says. Look at 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. This word is a word which was used to an individual who usually was the slave, a trusted slave, of a man of means in the Roman Empire. And what the ruler of that household would do, he would assign the responsibility of being, as this word is used, tutor. It really does not capture the idea. It's the idea of someone who will oversee to protect, but not simply to protect an individual under his tutelage, but also to dis- discipline the individual if that individual gets out the ba- outside the bon- boundaries that are set by the Father and administered to this tutor. But faith has come to us who are no longer under a tutor. We have had the law to be our tutor in a sense. Look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And the word chosen here of son means a full-grown child. We are mature. All believers, Jewish and Gentile, have dignity and privilege of being fully grown children of God. We are no longer needing someone to oversee us and make decisions for us following this image that is given to us in the Scripture. Look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? There is difference of opinion, but in light of the fact that we can make no contribution in the way of doing some sort of religious act to get right with God, some people think, if I get baptized, I will be right with God. That's getting the cart before the horse. We get right with God, are justified by God, and then the spiritual response is to get baptized. Why? Because when we are baptized, and note that people are to be baptized publicly, it's our opportunity to show that we know Jesus. I've got a pen in my pocket and I'm going to use it for illustration purpose. And I'm going to be baptizing a person. I visited with this person yesterday, and we're making plans for this person's baptism. And I explained that the water doesn't wash you clean. The blood of Christ, the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins and then being raised from the dead makes us clean. Look, when a person is placed in the water for baptism, and there's a baptizer. In this case, it will be me with regard to this person. And I will ask questions of the person, which I will listen carefully for the answer. It's not giving someone the third degree. It's just asking questions that are indicative of a positive answer. 
those answers will be indicative of a commitment to Jesus. And then what I say, I'll say, I baptize you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as I do that, what, I, what will I do? I'll take the person under the water. I don't keep the person under the water. <laughs> I tried one time here when I was uh, much younger, I might add, and there was a young man that I had had the privilege to observe giving his life to Christ. He was an uh, all-conference football player at UTEP. He only weighed 300 pounds. And we were getting ready for his baptism, and he was very mild-mannered and very respectful to me. And he said, Pastor, kind of like that. He had sort of a slow voice. Pastor, don't you think you might need someone to help you baptize me? And I said, why no, I don't need anything, anyone to help me baptize you, Robbie. I've baptized a man bigger than you. Robbie was 290 at that time. And I had baptized a man about 300 pounds or more. But what I failed to remember, that was 25 years earlier in my life. <laughs> so I was in this baptistry and Robbie was there. And I was excited about it because I had watched him come from a man who didn't know anything about the Lord to saved in a matter of a couple, three weeks through the witness of his teammates at UTEP on the minor football team. So I took him under and I got him up about this far out of the water and all of a sudden I just fell right on top of him. <laughs> wow, what a moment. Well, he did get baptized unconventionally, and I got wet too. But look, all foolishness aside, when you know Jesus Christ, he has given you, as he gave to me, the privilege of being united in the eyes of people with Christ. Already united. If you know Jesus, you're already in Christ. There's a man here. I'm just going to single you out, Chuck. Chuck Foss. I talked to Chuck. I've known Chuck for 45 years. And one of the first conversations he had when he was a member of a church I pastored here in El Paso before, we were talking about his salvation, and he got, came to Christ as a college student, at Potsdam, New York. And after he came to Christ, he was influenced to Christ by a bunch of students there who hung out in the student center and they were happy and they were friendly and he got to know them and they invited him to the church where he worshiped and he gave his heart to Christ. And he noticed that a lot of the people who were coming to Christ through this group were going to that church and getting baptized. So he made an appointment with the pastor. And he went in and the pastor said, Chuck, how are you? He said, fine. And he said, what do you want? He said, I want to ask you, why do I have to be baptized? And he said, I was baptized as a baby in my church. He was a Lutheran raised young man, Christian mother truly Christian mother, still living, by the way, over 100 years old now. But then his pastor gave a brilliant response to the question. He said, Chuck, 
you don't have to be baptized. You get to be baptized. To publicly identify, think of it. Publicly identified with Jesus Christ, willing to stand and share that you have come to know Jesus. So, going back to the text where it says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, identified with Christ publicly, have clothed yourselves with Christ. The book of Romans, chapter 13, 14, also written by this same apostle Paul, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using the same imagery there that he uses here about being clothed with Christ. And notice, we have to clothe ourselves. After we come to Christ, there is a role which we play in our sanctification. The Bible commands us to be sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Justified, that's a word we don't use very often. Sanctified is a word we don't use even nearly as much as that. Sanctified is a beautiful term which simply means set apart for Christ's use. You give your life to Jesus Christ. You can't come to Him on a bargain you make. Lord, I'll do this if you will do that. You come to Him when you fully surrender and say, Lord, here I am. Do what you wish to do with me. No questions asked. But as we follow Christ, we are given options. And the options are, am I going to deny myself and keep on following Christ? Or am I going to sink back into a life of self-centeredness, focused on me and what I want? And when it says that we clothe ourselves every morning, I get dressed. I spend way too much time deciding what I'm going to wear to go to church. And what it comes down to many times, it has to be something that's clean. Yeah. I have to do my own laundry, and I'm not negative about that. My wife is an invalid, and I've become the one. It, 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 very honestly, guys, you probably may have had this experience where your wife, if you're married, did the laundry. Some of you ladies had your husband do the laundry. That happens sometimes. But I have grown in appreciation for my wife since she's been unable to do things that she did so well and better than I ever would have done them. But we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh according to the lusts of my heart is what Romans 13, 14 says. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now back up with me just a moment. Recall what we have learned about the false teachers who were trying to rob these new babies in Christ of their birthright and trying to draw them back into a legalistic keeping of the law of God to be right with God. And what he says here, these Judaizers, as they were called, were on the march to undo what Paul had been used by the Spirit of God to do to save these people from their sins and make them right before God. 
There's neither slave, free man, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. What is this saying? It's saying simply, primarily, all distinctions of socioeconomics and religious life are evaporated when Christ comes into our lives. So we don't ask anybody, where do you work? Where did you go to college? How long have you been a Baptist? All that kind of stuff. All those things are immaterial. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. We are one. I have said it before. I will say it, I'm sure, again. One of the most attractive things for me personally about being a member of the body of Christ, a church which is part of the universal church of Christ, is that there is no inequality in the church. This is what ails America, isn't it? It's what ails the world, isn't it? Everybody jostling for position. We who know Jesus Christ, we don't have to jostle, do we? Because where is our position? It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we are His brother or sister. We are adopted into the family of God, which we're going to see here in just a moment. Look at 29. If you, and by the way, you here is singular. He's not talking about y'all here. He's saying if you as an individual belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring or seed. Well, I thought Jesus was his offspring, and I would be right. I thought that Moses was his offspring. I would be right. We are in Christ, and therefore we are Abraham's offspring. Remember, where is our position now that we've come to know Christ? It can't be earned, nor is it deserved. It's nothing we can be proud of. We can be intensely grateful for it, and we should be. But when we're in Christ, we are seen by God the Father as being like Christ Himself. And it's there that we find our inheritance according to the promise that was given 4,000 plus years ago to this nomad from Ur of the Chaldees. Let's look at a further explanation of our position in the next paragraph, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4, going through verse 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, that would be a minor, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. He is the named heir by his father. But that person is a slave in terms of freedom. There is no freedom for that person. Why? He's under a tutor in the way of the day in Rome among families that could afford such a luxury. Look at verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. The word guardian and manager speak about two kinds of guardianship, actually. The first word guardian has to do with 
guarding the person who is under that individual's tutelage. And then the second has to do with guarding the wealth of that individual. Uh, I mentioned my wife is an invalid, and there came a time when I had to make a decision. It was extremely hard. I still don't relish having had to make it, but it was apparent that I needed to go to the court and ask if I could become her guardian. I had never needed the services of attorney before. I was led to an excellent attorney who helped me with this process. But the question was raised, and this was all new for me, are you going to ask for guardianship of the person or the estate? Or are you going to ask for both? And this is kind of the idea. The guardian word here is guardian of the person, looking after the person. And the manager word is guardian of that person's estate until the date set by the father. So let's look at verse 3. Also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What are those elemental things? We go outside the New Testament to discover what this referred to in secular life. The elemental things basically initially were what we would call our ABCs, alpha, beta, gamma in Greek. Those would have been the letters, but ABCs. It came to be used to describe the ABCs of some enterprise or some career. ABCs, nuts and bolts idea, would be the idea, the elemental things. And then, more recently, it has become some way of helping us to understand, to remember that the elemental things at this time in history, when this was written, when it came to Gentiles, they looked to the heavens. If you've studied mythology or idolatry in this time in history, you'll know that virtually all of the gods had some connection to the heavens. And so that was part of it as well. Even the Jewish people love the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. They didn't worship them, but they were just like we are yesterday. Hopefully none of you looked at the eclipse very long. I was worried. I got to thinking about something I read in a book years ago about a young lady when there was a solar eclipse and she was warned by her parents. She was warned by her teachers at school. She's about a sixth or seventh grader and she got mesmerized and looked at it. Didn't, didn't seem to be hurting her eyes. She looked for about a minute and a half and her mother found her and told her, what are you doing? And like kids do a lot of times, she kind of skipped out of there and walked down, it was in a small town, walked down to the local drugstore. And by the time she got there and started to try to come back, she was blind, completely blind. But it's not that kind of attraction to those things, but just an appreciation of the handiwork, magnificence of God. Let's look now at verse 4. But when the fullness 
of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now that's a mouthful, the fullness of time. What might that indicate? It's the moment of great joy. I know in heaven, and to a lesser degree to begin with that day, although when the angels came to announce to the shepherds that the Messiah had come, was there great joy on earth? In their lives, definitely, there was great joy with Joseph and Mary and many other people. But what we know is that that joy was just getting started because in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. The word translated sent forth in the original language is a word which says sent with a mission. Jesus was on a mission when He came to be one of us. And His mission is clear. It's prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, Unto us a child is born. That speaks of the humanity of the Messiah. And then a son is given. That speaks of the deity of the individual. Jesus sent forth on mission by God as God's Son. He is God in the flesh. Born of a woman. That speaks of His humanity. It speaks also of His humility. Can you imagine? You women who have given birth, can you imagine having your child in a stall of an inn where animals were kept? Unbelievable. This is the king of kings being born in the most humble setting. Born under the law. Jesus had to keep the law. That's one of the reasons He came. And did He keep the law? Every jot and tittle He kept. And what that made Him qualify for is being the Savior. You say, well, He couldn't sin. He was God. I understand that. But He still was tempted. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.18, He suffered when He was tempted. When He was tempted, He suffered we don't know what all that means, but at least it meant that he saw what kind of suffering we would go through and he submitted himself to that in his purity, his perfection, and this qualified him to be our high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are. Thank God he never gave in, right? Yet without sin. So we see here, this great moment, the fullness of time. It was the Pax Romana, which translates from Latin, as you probably know, the peace of Rome. Travel was easy. There was not danger as much as there would have been in other parts of the world of being jumped by thieves, beat up like the Good Samaritan story and left for dead, perhaps. It was also the time of one language, universal language. This made the spread of the gospel much more easy. Paul spoke probably three languages at least. He spoke 
Aramaic, which was an offshoot of Hebrew. He could read Hebrew too. He probably spoke Hebrew. He was multilingual. He could speak Greek. That was what was most important because it was the universal language. There was peace, Pax Romana. You can see why God chose this time and waited until this time. Verse 5 says, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, redeemed. We have been redeemed. I so appreciated the songs which were selected. Obviously, Ryan read this passage of Scripture in anticipation of our looking at it together. And he talked about, we have a good, good father. And talked about his redeeming work. How deep the father's love for us, his redemption we have a Redeemer. All those songs fed into my own heart and just heartened me, strengthened me, and made me grateful for the opportunity to be the recipient of the redeeming work of Christ. What did He do to redeem us? It's a word of the slave market. He had to pay a price. What was the price that Jesus Christ paid for your redemption and mine? His life. The awful death he died. The insults and all going with it. And he says also that we might receive adoption as sons. According to the law of Rome, a person was adopted and adopted for life. There were men of means who had no offspring. They were not for some reason able to become a physical father. And so they would choose someone to be their son or sons. And the first son, the firstborn, would be the one who would get the lion's share of the inheritance. And so we are not only redeemed, we are children of God. Make no mistake about it. But as many as received Him, Christ that is, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God, i.e., born again by the living and abiding word of God. And into our hearts, and look, the spirit of his sons, verse 6 says, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. For the first time, I have read this probably almost a hundred times, not in preparation for this message. But here, when I'm teaching this text of Scripture, I notice that the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. He knows God as Father. We know the Holy Spirit is God on an equal with God the Father as Jesus is on equal with Spirit and Father also. But he cries, Abba. You know the word Abba is the most familiar way of addressing a parent, particularly a father in the Hebrew home. Abba. It's like Dada in our language as English speakers. And Father. He is our Father. He's not some remote God who is unfeeling. There's no other thing called religion on earth like this. That Christ, 
made it possible for us by the Spirit to know God as our Father. Verse 7 says, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. We were slaves to what? Sin, exactly. But a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have an inheritance. Read your Bible. Read the book of Ephesians. See what all is ours. Granted, it's not always material, and material things are fleeting anyway, aren't they? Someday I'm going to die, and I'll have something to leave behind, I suppose. Maybe not. But I'm not defined by how much I have. I'm not defined by that. I'm defined now as a son of God. And if you know Jesus, that's the way you are defined. You are a child of God. And that makes you a person who is ultimately rich. The Bible says, when God told Jesus, God the Father, it's time, Son. And what does the Scripture say in 2 Corinthians? He left all the glory of heaven to become one of us. And the purpose of that is so that we might become rich like He was in heaven. Not monetary, not something having to do with things, but in our relationship to God. Look at verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And he's talking about idols, idols here. Idolatry was rampant in that day. And it still is today, by the way. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which is more important, do you suppose? God knowing me or my knowing God? Well, I have to be known by God, chosen by God, before I can really know Him. And this is eternal life, the Bible says, that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amazing. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Can you feel a little bit of what Paul is feeling. Over the course of my life as an adult, I have had the privilege of being involved in the birthing process of someone into God's family. I've been a midwife, if you will. I didn't have anything to do with the conception I didn't have anything to do really with the delivery except being there to help and just witnessing and I just shake my head every time I see it happen to see the miracle happen over and over and over again when people commit themselves and they're changed irreversibly. But there have been times, I'm thinking of one of my closest friends alive. He underwent major surgery just on Friday in Alabama. And I was privileged to be the spokesman, the messenger, to share the gospel with him. He worked for the Border Patrol. I shared the gospel with him. He gave his life to the Lord. He became instantly involved in serving the Lord and helping others to come to know the Lord also. But after he left, he was transferred from the Border Patrol to another 
agency, went up northeast. He left his wife for another woman. I did not hear from him for 25 years. My heart ached. I knew he had given his life to Christ, but he went his own way. He called me 10 years ago, and I recognized his voice immediately, and he said, Mike, I need to talk to you. I said, so good to hear your voice. And he told me how he was in an automobile wreck. He was at fault. It almost killed the man in the car he hit, and it almost killed him. It was a wake-up call from the Lord. And it was a turnaround. He had 25 wasted years as a child of God. And God got his attention. He disciplines those whom he loves. And it's great to see when people come back, when they have known and tasted of the Lord that He is good, and they have drunk from the well that never runs dry. Jesus says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for yourself. If any man is thirsty, let him keep on coming to Me and drink. Look, this relationship with the Lord Jesus is not, let's get this done and move on. It's about committing ourselves to Christ and walking with Him daily. That's what it's all about. Look at verses 10 and 11 as we finish. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Do you see the love this man had for his people? And what form did their moving back into a legalistic way of living, take. Days, what does that mean? Observing days, and if you would look at Colossians, three or four books over, look quickly, we've got about a minute, and let's go back to Colossians, and look what it says. Chapter 2, Verse 16, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regarding to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. A Sabbath day. We are to be people who live in a perpetual Sabbath in the sense that we're yoked up with Christ, trusting Him, and we do need to take the wise truth from that great command to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. But we can't be depending on that for our salvation. And then months, that would be the looking to the elemental things, the moon and measuring things by the moon. A new moon would signal a new start and that was something that was common in Israel's day and seasons. This would probably be referring to the mandatory festivals that were observed. And then lastly, the section says years. This probably would be the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they were to lay, let the lay, ground lay fallow and live on what they had saved the previous six years. Or the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, all Property went back to the family that initially owned it. And then there would be two years where there would be no crops gathered. So those things were things that were pertinent 
and representative of things spiritual, but what he's saying, don't let people con you into thinking or goad you into thinking that these are the things which make you more spiritual. You have no need to look outside of your relationship with me to be a man or a woman who is spiritual because the spirit of me, Jesus, the spirit of Christ lives in you and the Holy Spirit lives in you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Galatians. Thank you, more importantly, for saving us from our sins. Help me, Lord, help each of us to trust you and you only for our lives, to yield to you, to gladly surrender to you and follow you, not occasionally, but every day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.